Children's Health Defense is proud to be a sponsor of the Right on Point podcast, a weekly discussion of legal issues and initiatives to protect our most cherished resource, our children, hosted by Wayne Rohde. Welcome to the Right on Point podcast, everyone. Thank you for listening. Once again, we meet up with the most intriguing show discussing your civil liberties, your legal rights surrounding the COVID epidemic, state and federal government actions, and your health freedom. I'm your host, Wayne Rohde. I want to thank our sponsor for this week's podcast, Children's Health Defense and The Defender. Check out our website on the rightonpoint.online for previous discussions, episodes, show notes, and bios of our guests. The Right on Point podcast is delighted to bring you a platform that shares exciting and informative shows delivered by tremendous guests like we have today. This is a surprise. So let's dig in. Very interesting topic to discuss today and question to my listeners like I do every episode. How many of you know of Neil Miller? And a follow-up question. If you don't know him, Why not? (laughs) Neil is a published author, a true independent medical researcher, and journalist. Last week on the Right on Point podcast, there was a new study that was put out in the Journal of Translation Science and health effects in uh, vaccinated versus unvaccinated children with covariance of breastfeeding status and type of birth. And Brian Hooker was our guest, and we talked about it. But Neil Miller is the other author to that. Neil is a publisher, or actually an author, of several books. Vaccine Safety Manual for Concerned Families and Health Practitioners, and it's a second edition. It was published in 2011. Another book came out in 2015, Vaccines, Are They Really Safe and Effective? And then the third book that he published, which I think is a very popular book, and I believe it's been distributed in several different state legislatures, Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, 400 Important Scientific Papers Summarized for Parents and Researchers. Well, today we're going to talk a little bit about his books. We're going to talk about that paper that he co-wrote with uh, Brian Hooker. But also, he's got a new paper that he just put out, and it's kind of, well, it's within about a week or so, and I'm really interested in getting into it. Mr. Miller represents the Institute of Medical and Scientific Inquiry in what many people consider God's country, which is Santa Fe, New Mexico. And he's here to discuss that new paper that he authored. So welcome to the show, Neil been a long time to finally get you on the program. How are you doing? Thanks, Wayne. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I'm doing great today. Okay. I don't know where you want to start, but I've got this new paper that you sent to me and vaccines and sudden infant death and analysis of the VAERS database from 1990 to 2019 in a review of the medical literature. Yeah, just published. This was published in a peer-reviewed medical journal called Toxicology Reports. Mm -hmm. And I was working on this for the last several months, and they they published it. It went through the peer review process. And uh, once that peer review process was done, they were very quick to get it out, you know, to send me the proofs and, and and then to publish straight to publication. That study is called Vaccines and Sudden Infant Death. An analysis of the VAERS database, 1990 to 2019, and review of the medical literature. Mm-hmm. Now, um, there's a lot of important things in this study, but before we get into this study, I just want to do a, a quick recap of that study that I did with, with Brian Hooker. Sure. Okay, Brian, Dr. Brian Hooker and I uh, co-authored a, uh, a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study. Our officials that should be doing these these studies, whether whether you think it should be the, you know, frankly, I don't really want the CDC or the World Health Organization to do it to do a vaccinated versus unvaccinated study because I don't really trust them to do a study that's that that is uh, is trustworthy or credible. Um, but nevertheless, they are the organizations that should be behind this push to to look at the the health. Uh, outcomes in vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. Nevertheless, Brian Hooker and I uh, uh, 
collaborated on, on two, two studies that looked at vaccinated versus unvaccinated children. Our first study was published last year and um, we looked at four health conditions. Um, but this year we, we had access to, to three more uh, practicing uh, doctors, uh, pediatricians who had had who were accepting both vaccinated and unvaccinated children in their practices. And we had those, we had that, that, that information and were able to construct a study comparing the health outcomes uh, of uh, based, we, we looked at basically uh, allergies, autism, gastrointestinal disorders, asthma, attention deficit uh, a disorder, and chronic ear infections. And uh, Brian is, is wonderful with, with, uh, with statistics. He's wonderful with, with numbers. You know, you can ask him to do anything, to look at anything. He can apply statistical analyses to it. So we, we were able to, to look at a lot of, look at the data in a lot of different ways to, to be sure that the effects that we were finding were, were valid and credible. Um, and sure enough, in, with all six of these conditions that, that I just, just uh, discussed, unvaccinated children were without a doubt healthier and had, uh, had significantly fewer, fewer of these uh, negative health outcomes. In fact, the, uh, the ORs, uh, which is, uh, stands for odds ratios, it's a statistical term, uh, we're above 4.0 for, for all of these conditions, which, which um, for the layperson, I just have to tell you, it's highly, highly significant. So, you know, anything above one is normally extremely significant. Basically, we found that vaccinated children were anywhere from four to over 10 times more likely to be diagnosed with these, with these negative health outcomes than, than unvaccinated children. And, and one of the other uh, important things, in fact, my favorite part of this study, as was published in the Journal of Translational Science, this latest study by Dr. Mm -hmm. Brian Hooker and I, my favorite part is, is uh, tables nine and 10. That's what so I've got. Good for you. Good for you for, for recognizing, you know, how significant, you know, to, to jump right to those, those two tables. We looked at breastfeeding in, uh, in, in, in concert with, with vaccination. And so basically what we did is, is we looked at, we, we divided in, in table nine, we divided uh, all of our, our, our participants, uh, all of the people that we had access to, to look at all of the children that either did receive vaccines or did not receive vaccines. We, we divided them into four groups. And in the first group, we looked at children that were not vaccinated and they were breastfed. Then we looked at children that were not vaccinated and not breastfed. Then we looked at children that were vaccinated and breastfed. And, children, and then the fourth group was children that were vaccinated and not breastfed. And we found a statistically significant linear relationship between um, basically the children that were not vaccinated and were breastfed had the best health outcomes. They had very low rates of allergies, autism, gastrointestinal disorders, asthma, attention deficit disorder, and chronic ear infections. The group that had the, the worst health outcomes were vaccinated and not breastfed. And th they had odds ratios that were, again, they were anywhere from four to over 10 times higher than, than, than the groups that, the, the reference group, which was the uh, unvaccinated and breastfed group. Table 10 is very interesting as well. We also had um, data, not only on whether these children were, were, were vaccinated or not vaccinated, but we also had data on whether the children were born uh, with a natural, uh, born, born um, vaginally, or whether the mother had a C-section for the child. And we found very similar um, odds ratios. Um, again, basically what we found was children that were not vaccinated and had a vaginal birth had the best health outcomes all the way up to, to, to the worst health outcomes were in children that were vaccinated and, had, um, had, and were born through, through cesarean sections. 
And the, uh, the, the, the best explanation for this, we, we know with breastfeeding that, that breastfeeding is so uh, wonderful for the immune system. Mm -hmm. So that only makes sense that that's going to, to, to help to reduce negative health outcomes in these, in these children. But with why would, why would a C-section uh, birth cause worse health outcomes than a vaginal birth? And there's two, at least two explanations, possibly three that I can think of. One of them is that there's a lot of evidence that when the newborn is coming down the birth canal through a natural vaginal birth, they're picking up the mother's mi uh, microbiome, all of the uh, microorganisms that are in that, in that uh, birth canal are being passed on to the baby. And that is part of that baby's immune system. So the baby's not only getting, you know, through breastfeeding, get, getting immune building uh, nutrition, also coming down the birth canal. Now, when you, when you uh, bypass that, that birth canal through a C-section, then you're tampering with this natural process of, 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 of with, with, the, uh, with the microbiome. That's one explanation. Another explanation is a lot of mothers um, have trouble breastfeeding babies when they're born through C-section. So the ba babies have trouble latching onto the breast and things like that. So it's also possible that these babies are more likely than vaginally born babies to not, not be, be having access to, 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 to proper and, and prolonged breastfeeding. Um, um, there's, a, there's a third possible explanation and that would be a lot of times with C-sections, they, they, they give the mother more antibiotics. Um, and yeah. so the antibiotics also damage the, the, uh, the microbiome. Um, and, and so that, that goes back to that. Right, that so, it's kind of strange that you talked about breastfeeding and C-section. I did not know that, that there's more, I guess, babies that refuse breastfeeding if they're born by cesarean. I think what happens is there's a bonding process that takes place. Um, through, through the, through, you know, and, and it's also possible that the mother, she may have been knocked out for the, for the, for the, for the C-section yeah. and she might not be all, you know, all together there to work with the baby. I, I'm not sure for all, all of the details. Now, me personally, um, my wife and I, our children were born at home 30 some years ago. I've been, I've been outspoken about vaccines ever since my wife was pregnant. And with with our first child, we had two okay. children, and and uh, that's how I got started into into this. I investigated vaccines when my wife was pregnant, more than thirty years ago, sure. and we decided we were not going to to vaccinate. Uh, at the time, I was doing my research in, in medical journals in, in in medical libraries because we didn't have access to the internet like we do today. Right. Uh, um, we had, and, and we also had a natural birth. We didn't, we didn't, we didn't have that. We didn't, we didn't work with uh, medical doctors. We were, we were very holistic, very uh, natural minded. I, I, I was the one to, to catch my, my, my children when they first entered the world. And, and I was the first to greet them. And of course, my, my, my wife breastfed our children for over two years. Okay. Um, and we did not vaccinate our children. They were breastfed. Uh, we did a lot of things that were unusual at the time. We did family bedding. You know, we didn't put our kids into a, you know, we didn't put our children into, into a crib. Uh, they slept with us until they were about three or four years old. We did everything like that. My son was, was not circumcised. So, so we didn't do that. Everything was holistic and we didn't, and our children never visited a medical doctor. Now, if there was an emergency, I think that's where our Western allopathic uh, medicine is, is at its at its finest with emergency medical care. But uh, but we thankfully we didn't need emergency medical care for anything, whether it was the birth or or the, the children growing up. So they they never visited a, a medical doctor. But uh, but let's move on to my to my other latest study that was also published just about a week ago. It just this came one, out. This one's got a lot of interest for me because of my interest in SIDS and all yeah. the research. So Let's really get into this one because this is yeah actually all you know autism since the nineteen nineties two thousand 
autism has been the talk of the town, and rightfully so. The medical pharmaceutical industry has done their best to, to, to censor any data, any information linking vaccines to autism. But I have to tell you, I've been doing this since, since the, the, this work since the mid-1980s. And uh, I wrote my first book in the late 1980s. And um, that book has been translated into multiple languages. And Vaccines Are They Really Safe and Effective was my first book uh, based off of my initial research. And people still come up to me today and thank me for writing that book and thank me for, for educating them so that they could make informed decisions for their own children. But the reason I'm mentioning this is because back in the 1980s, talk wasn't so much about autism. It was about sudden death, sudden infant death, right. sudden infant death syndrome. And babies were dying uh, mostly after receiving the, 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 the whole cell diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis vaccine, the DPT vaccine. Um, it was a highly reactive vaccine. And in fact, because that, that vaccine was causing so much uh, brain damage and death, they, they moved to the acellular pertussis vaccine. They initially didn't want to move to an acellular pertussis vaccine. Uh, I believe mainly, my, my research showed me, because the Japanese really had the pat patent on the acellular vaccine, and it was the American pharmaceutical companies didn't have the patent on it. So they wanted to continue, even though the babies were dying and being permanently uh, injured from that whole cell pertussis vaccine, they wanted to continue with it for as long as they could. Um, but it wasn't until the 1990s that they were able to, to, to switch over from the, from the whole cell pertussis vaccine to the acellular pertussis vaccine. So I had an interest in sudden infant death since the 1980s and through, throughout the 1990s. But it was only recently that I decided, you know what, I'm going to write about this and I'm going to document the history of, of sudden infant death. And I'm also going to conduct a, an analysis of the VAERS database. The VAERS database, for those who aren't aware, is it VAERS, V-A-E-R-S. It's an acronym that stands for the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. And it's a, it's a, it's a vaccine uh, database that's jointly run by the FDA and the CDC. And it was, uh, it, was, uh, uh, requi it was required to be established uh, by, the, by the 1986 vaccine laws that were established mm -hmm. by Congress. They, it went, when, they, they, they went, when in 1986, Congress established a law that, that gave uh, liability protection to vaccine manufacturers. It established the vaccine court and it also um, established the vaccine compensation program and also uh, required that, that um, there would be a, a, a database established by the FDA and the CDC so that people that, uh, that so that babies that uh, babies or children or when, when anybody was hurt by a vaccine, it could be documented and recorded in the VAERS database. Um, so that would be a safety a database so that it would give us initial warnings. If you see uh, patterns in that VAERS database, that's an, that's an initial safety signal. Anyway, um, in the past year, I, I worked on this paper and, and just, uh, just two, about a week, week and a half ago, this paper was, was published, uh, went through peer review process and, uh, and, and was published. It's called Vaccines and Sudden Infant Death, an analysis of the VAERS database, 1990 to 2019, and review of the medical literature. Now there's basically three sections to this paper, okay? In the first section, I describe a little bit of the history. Mm -hmm. And then the second section, I conduct a, a, a study or an analysis of the VAERS database. And in the third section, I review the medical literature going back to the 1930s all the way up to the, to the present. In summary, prior to the 1960s, Okay, something happened in the 1960s that was different, that was unique, and that's not really talked about in, in so-called anti-vaccine circles, um, or vaccine circles, or anti-vaccine circles. By the way, mothers and fathers that are labeled as anti-vaccinators are not anti-vaccinators. They're ex-vaccinators. 
they did what they were told. They listened to the CDC. They listened to the, to the FDA. They listened to their medical doctor in the World Health Organization, and they vaccinated according to the CDC's recommended immunization schedule. Their children became permanently disabled, permanently injured, or died as a result of following the, the recommended immunization schedule. And they decided they needed to protect their children from further vaccination. And now they are ex-vaccinators and they are labeled as anti-vaccinators because it's used as a slur, as though those people that have done the research are somehow anti-science, anti-scientific, or are spreading misinformation. But the truth of the matter is that there are several studies. And by the way, uh, in, my, in my latest book, Miller's Review of Critical Vaccine Studies, I summarize several studies that show that people that investigate and do their research on vaccines, people that are labeled as anti-vaccinators are actually more educated, more highly educated than people that just follow the, uh, the, the blindly follow the recommendations of, of the CDC. Um, let's get back to the, to the, to the study. Uh, something happened in the 1960s. Prior to the 1960s, there, there was no term. There were, there, they didn't even have a term for sudden infant death. They had, they had something that was called crib death. It's extremely rare, uh, highly unusual for a baby to die from, from what they were calling crib death. Um, and you could go anywhere and, and read the medical literature around the world, and you would find that the, there, was, there, was very few, there were very few references to crib death. In the 1960s, what happened was several new vaccines were introduced and required for entry into school. National immunization campaigns were instituted around the nation, and in fact, in other countries as well. And so starting in the 1960s, for children to, to go to public school, they had to get uh, smallpox vaccines, DPT vaccines. They had, then they also introduced measles and then mumps and rubella. They had the, the polio vaccine that was required. Uh, and so um, by, by the time, by the late 1960s, there were so much, uh, so many deaths that were, were, were occurring uh, in infants um, that they had to be, had to um, create a new, a new, a new, uh, a new medical term called sudden infant death syndrome. Um, and, and that, 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 and then, and then in 1972, that, that term sudden infant death was, was formalized. And, um, and became a legal term, a legal cause of death. A lot of people aren't aware of the uh, international classification of diseases. So there are 130 ways for an infant to officially die. Um, and it's, it's listed, these are codes, medical codes listed in the international classification of diseases. Starting in the late 1890s or the early 1890s, I think in 1893, they, they established, they first established this system, the International Classification of Diseases. And about every 10, 15, or 20 years, they, they revise the International Classification of Diseases and, and bring it up to date. So we're up to the uh, 11th uh, revision, I, I believe, uh, of, the, of the International Classification of Diseases. So, so when a baby dies in the coroner, or, or a medical certifier has to certify the cause of death, um, they, they have to choose from among, the, among, among these 130 categories. The medical industry did something that's, that's very interesting in the 1970s. Up until the 1970s, they, they had a category in there called prophylactic vaccination. And then they had uh, as, as a, so a medical certifier could list if a baby was vaccinated and died after receiving that vaccine, and that medical certifier found a link between that vaccine and the death, they could list prophylactic vaccination as the official cause of death, okay? Um, and prophylactic is just a fancy term for, for preventative. And they also had subcategories for particular vaccines. If you died from a particular vaccine, so they had subcategories they could also code for in, in the ICD. But uh, starting, in, um, starting in the 1970s, when, when the International Classification of Diseases was revised, the medical industry completely removed prophylactic vaccination as a cause of, as an official cause of death. Right. Yeah. So now what, what, is it, what, so what, what does that mean? What, is, what happens? 
what, what is the effect of, of having done that? Now remember, okay, sudden infant death was, 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 was basically unheard of until the 1960s when national immunization campaigns were instituted. In 1969, sudden infant death was a new term. And then in the 1970s, starting in the mid 1970s, when, when the ICD was changed, the prophylactic vaccination was no longer going to be used as an official cause of death. Medical certifiers were, were essentially compelled to, to do two things. Number one, misclassify uh, cause of death if they, were, if they were caused by vaccines. And, and conceal those, those, those causes, causes of death, right? Because they couldn't list them as prophylactic vaccination anymore. So what did they do? Many of those deaths, they, they would label a sudden infant death syndrome. That was a catch-all term for many of these infant deaths that had took place shortly after vaccination. And so sudden infant death uh, statistics skyrocketed. In the 1980s, Parents were, were beginning to catch on. At the time, the industry, at the time, they still had, you know how today the industry has captured, completely captured the, the media. The, the media doesn't do any investigative research on vaccines at all today. They, they simply parrot, um, you know, whatever the, 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 they're told from the, uh, from, from the health organizations, which the, the FDA, the CDC, the World Health Organization, for the most part, They've been captured by big pharma. That whole conglomerate, that whole industri medical industrial complex has captured the media. So the media is no longer doing their investigative research and, and, and reporting. Well, I have to tell you, because I've been doing this work for educating parents and health practitioners about vaccines for more than 30 years. And they were, they, they, the medical industry had a good, you know, they, they captured the industry back in the 80s as well. It wasn't as, as much of a tyrannical grasp. It wasn't as, as oppressive. And some of the investigative uh, TV shows were doing stories on babies that were dying after receiving the DPT vaccine. Um, and people were frightened and vaccination rates were dropping. And, and the medical industry, the big pharma was, was, was losing money and they were upset. And in fact, that's when they were starting to be sued. And people were, were you know, a lot of lawyers were, were, were getting in on, on suing uh, vaccine manufacturers. And the vaccine manufacturers um, threatened to go out of business if they didn't get, gain that liability protection that Congress, uh, Congress gave them in 1986. Um, but something else happened um, shortly after that. Because the vaccination rates were dropping and people were scared of the DPT vaccine, the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics came out and said, we need to assure parents, assure parents that vaccines are safe and, and that babies are not dying in their cribs because they just recently received their vaccines. That's just a coincidence. They're dying in their cribs because parents are placing them on their bellies rather than on their backs. In 1992, the American Academy of Pediatrics um, started a national campaign and it was called the Back to Bed campaign. Basically, it was teaching parents to put their babies supine when they lay them to, to, to rest or lay them down for the evening uh, rather than prone. And something happened. Shortly after that, it seemed like the SIDS rates dropped. It seemed like the cause of these sudden infant deaths were not related to the vaccines, but it was related to the babies being, being improperly placed on, on, on their bellies in the cribs. Well, guess what? In this paper that, um, uh, that was just published in Toxicology Reports, Vaccines and Sudden Infant Death, okay, um, I did a little more digging. And what I, I discovered was when, when that campaign took place, medical coroners, medical certifiers and coroners, okay, death certifiers, they did something. They changed how they were recording these deaths. So deaths that were previously recorded as sudden infant death syndrome were now being recorded as suffocation in bed. They were now being recorded as death caused by unknown or other causes. When you do an analysis of the drop in sudden infant death, okay, if you look at just sudden infant death statistics, let's say from, from a period in the 1990s to the early 2000s, sudden infant death absolutely dropped and it was statistically significant. And it looks like it absolutely on the surface looks like the, the, the American Academy of Pediatrics 
program uh, to, to put babies on, on their backs when they go to sleep was successful. And it made it look like uh, sudden infant death syndrome was not related to, to vaccination. However, what happened was there was a statistically significant increase in, in medical certifiers listing the cause of death, not as sudden infant death anymore, but as suffocation in bed and, and suffocation other and, and death from unknown causes. And when you combine these other causes we're now using to certify a cause of death and combine those with SIDS, there was no statistically significant decline in, in infant deaths. And, and so, so it was essentially a farce, okay? Basically, it was robbing Peter to pay, pay Paul. It was a shell right. game. They were, they were move, moving these deaths from one death certification category to another. And it's all documented. I have, I have all the references, all the citations, so that it's not just my word, that it's documenting that this is something that actually took, in reality, took place. Um, so, so that's the first part of my paper. We're documenting this history of, mm-hmm. of how there was manipulations and medical certifiers had to essentially, they, they were essentially compelled to, 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 to misclassify and conceal infant deaths when they, when they were possibly related to the to, to vaccination. So the coroners were using alternate categories to, to label it. They but use then, SIDS now? Can they, can a coroner say they always use SIDS. SIDS is, yes, they, they're, they're still using SIDS. SIDS is this catch-all phrase. Basically, basically, SIDS basically means we don't really know what happened. And, 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 or it means that, um, you know, yeah, the baby, the baby died shortly after receiving vaccines, but we're not going to list that because we don't have an official listing. So we're going to call it sudden infant death syndrome instead, or we're going to call it suffocation in bed, or we're going to call it death from unknown causes. There's other categories that are potentially used by medical certifiers as well. And I discussed these later in the paper, these other potential categories where potential deaths from, from infant vaccines are being certified as deaths from other, other causes. So then, then we get into the second part of my paper, and that's where I actually do uh, an analysis of the VAERS database. And what I did is I looked from 1990 to, to, to 2019, that's 30 years of data from the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System. Now keep in mind, the Vaccine Adverse Event Reporting System is accessible to independent researchers, independent investigators, okay, like myself. And so I, I'm able to download that data or I'm able to, to research that data and investigate. And uh, I did that and I looked at 30 years of data from 1990 to 2019. And I looked at two things. And so there's basically two main analyses in my paper. In the first analysis, I looked at all infant deaths that took place that were listed as reports in the reports of infant deaths after the vaccine, after vaccines were administered. And the second thing I did was looked at all infant deaths that took place, but were specifically labeled as sudden infant death syndrome, okay? And there were 2,605 reports of infant deaths after vaccination. And there were 1,048 infant deaths um, that were reported uh, as, that were labeled as sudden infant death syndrome. And um, there's a statistical analysis method to look at expected deaths in a certain period of time and, um, and the observed deaths. Mm-hmm. So basically, you're applying this statistical method to, to, to determine whether what, what are the expected number of deaths on any given day versus how many actually took place, okay? And that will, will determine whether there is a statistically significant difference, okay? So now, what I did is I looked at the first seven days and I broke it down. How many of these reports of deaths took place in what, what I'm calling close temporal proximity. That means that took place soon after the vaccines were administered. How many took place in the first day within 24 hours? How many took place within three days? And how many took place within seven days versus how many reports took place between eight days and 60 days post-vaccination? And if you look at how many deaths took place between eight days and 60 days post-vaccination, it was a very small number. 
that's that's the expected number. That's the that's closer to a background rate, right? Like how many would you expect? Um, how many ex would you expect um, uh, just just normally in, in, in say an unvaccinated child? Or how many would you expect before the child was vaccinated? Or how many would you expect just in society where, where uh, the child wasn't exposed to some potentially harmful or toxic substance? Okay, you can get up to my website at thinktwice.com. And um, I'm going to post that that uh, post this study. I'll also post that study that I co-authored with Dr. Brian Hooker. My previous study with with Brian Hooker is is on my opening page at thinktwice.com. But if you go to thinktwice.com and scroll almost to the bottom of that page on the left hand side, I'm going to have this study there. You're going to want to go to tables uh, tables two and tables three, and that's going to show you the the specific data showing how there was, there was a statistically significant number of deaths in close temporal proximity to the time of vaccination versus how many took place many, many days or many weeks post-vaccination. And by the way, you're, you're a lawyer and you know about the vaccine court. This is your, your field of expertise. I'm not um, an attorney. Okay, but you you've studied you've studied the, the vaccine court and you've written about it and uh, you you understand um, how it operates right. and 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 um, so you're you're you understand that um, uh, for example you understand that there's three prongs right that that have to be to, to be able to prove a, a case in, in to, one two and three you bet mm -hmm. right and one of those prongs is is basically there has to be some sort of a, of a linkage, right? For example, if, if a baby dies after a certain vaccine, that baby has to die. It's listed. There's a table of a, a, a table of how how quickly that baby has to die. Within if that baby dies within say 72 hours, um, that that's significant. That's listed as 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 a requirement. So if, if so so you can't you you can't argue that you know that you you're missing one of those prongs. You have to if that baby doesn't die within close temporal proximity. So the, the point I'm trying to make, this is a very significant issue, okay? Not just in my paper, but actually in the vaccine court, they require close temporal proximity as, as, a, as often as a condition, as, as one of those prongs um, to, to be able to, 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 to prove your case. Right, it's um, often three, which is, I, I short in short, it's basically timing. Does it fit within the medically accepted time frame? Yes, exactly. Whenever, you know, whether it's death, whether it's Guillain Barre, whether whatever the medical outcome, there is different timing elements here. Does it fit within exactly. that? And then right. often some, one is the plausible theory. Right. Mm -hmm. Some some vaccines, if they're gonna have um uh, like uh, inactive vaccines, a lot of times the, the reaction is going to take place uh, pretty quickly within a, within a couple of days, two two three days. Right. Uh, so, some live vaccines, the reaction, like with with uh, with the MMR vaccine, if there's going to be an adverse, a serious adverse reaction. Sometimes the sometimes it tends to occur on that ninth or tenth day post vaccination. Um, not, there's not an immediate reaction. And by the way, that's that's an incubation period. That's evidence of an incubation period. And in my paper, um, which I know you were very interested in, uh -huh. um, that I discussed a, a, an important case that, that came before the vaccine court. Um, uh, there's other elements, by the way, to my analysis. So you're going to have to get the study. Uh, your, your listeners will have to get the study to, to read the entire study. There's a lot of other great information that, that I don't have the time to get to discuss today, uh, but that but that's in that paper. You definitely want this paper. When I saw it, I said, "I this is this is incredible." And for my listeners, I'm going to have links on the uh, show notes for all of Neil's uh, papers and books and and even his website. So when we go and when you click on for listening to this uh, this episode, you'll see the show notes there, and you can click onto those papers, download them. And so people don't have to worry about taking notes during this podcast. I do want to bring up one thing here, and it's in that paper, and it's basically section, and you talk about the Boltman case. And, yeah, that's uh, what I was going to just and, discuss. Yeah. And Doug Miller. Now, 
what's interesting here, and the way that I really tried to boil it down in my discussions with people is, is that there is this triangle, if you will, of uh, how they describe the three elements that need to be present for SIDS cases, or whatever, and one's external stressors. And that's where Dr. Miller, the medical expert, kind of concentrated. And his argument was, correct me if I'm wrong, but his argument was vaccinations can be an external stressor that can cause premature pediatric death. And the way the court looked at it, you know, even though they granted compensation and then the government went uh, judge shopping to get an appeal and they appealed it and got it reversed, went up to the Federal Circuit Court of Appeals and uh, their motion was, their appeal was denied. So basically Boatman was done. Then comes along another case and that was already in the pipeline at the time. And that's the Nunez Diaz case. And this is where I find it very problematic, very concerning to the American people. That is our government is deciding about compensation for children who perish because of vaccination on policy, not on science anymore. And the policy is, and it was argued in Boatman in the federal circuit, your honors, if you award compensation to the family, many parents will not vaccinate. That was their key argument, which is not based on science, it's based on policy. That's what makes Boatman decision really, really concerning. But the Nunez comes along and the circuit takes it a step further. We talked about Alton one, which is the step where you got to show uh, a plausible theory that it can happen. That's all that requires. They, they affirm that not only does it have to be a plausible theory, but it's got to be supported by consensus of the medical community. And right. they've taken, and that's absolutely absurd because the medical, the, the, the medical community is not going to accept that vaccinations cause SIDS or the premature premium. And so basically now the court shut out any hope or of anybody submitting a petition because their child died of a vaccination. They've shut that door. It defeats the whole purpose of why the vaccine court was established in the first place. It was supposed to be a non-adversarial process through which, um, through which, parents could be compensated and, and the vaccine manufacturers could no longer be held liable. Now, if they want to do that, then the trade-off should be that the vaccine manufacturers should no longer have that, those, those liability protections. Those liability protections should be removed so that pe- pe- people um, are, f- are free, free to, to take these va- vaccine manufacturers to court and let the, let the juries decide whether or not compensation is 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 whether or not there's a link between the vaccines and and um, uh, and and these deaths that happen in, in in within a short period of time after those vaccines are received, um, I want to I want to I want to read something okay. from Dr. Douglas C. Miller. Um, he gave expert testimony, and he did give the, the, this this physiological explanation for, for how it was possible for these, these babies to die. And what he said was, um, he explained that when you receive one or more vaccines at once, it evokes the production of cytokines. Physiological studies have shown that these can produce fever and inhibit the activity of 5-HT neurons in the medulla, causing prolonged apneas and interference with autoresuscitation. Dr. Miller noted that that JB and JB was the was the the, the child that was uh, that died. Right. Um, you know because Dr. Dr. Miller he's a neuropathologist that's representing these parents in the vaccine court. Um, Dr. Miller noted that JB was a healthy infant developing normally. He was immunologically normal after receiving vaccines. Cytokines circulated into the central nervous system and interacted with the hypothalamus to provoke fever and act in the brainstem, which was already deficient in serotoninergic drive for respiratory effort, leading to an apneic episode from which he did not recover. 
um, and that is sudden infant death syndrome. So he's giving a, a scientific, medical, biologically plausible explanation for how a baby could suddenly expire. And by suddenly expire, um, I actually des described, um, if, if you, there's another important point that has to be made in the paper, okay? And this also gets to a potential weakness of my study. Now keep in mind, all studies have strengths and weaknesses, and they have to be they have to be understood within that context. They have to be understood within the within the confines of the boundaries of the study itself. What type of study? What type of what type of analyses were conducted? What were the limitations of the study, um, and how well does that apply out to the to the larger population as a whole? Um, so, so one of the weaknesses, potential weaknesses of my study, is that it's possible that these deaths that were happening shortly after vaccination were not due to vaccination, but were due to something called report, reporting bias, that, that parents were, are just more inclined to report um, these deaths um, because something happened that they recalled that happened in close proximity, okay? So, so, so basically the baby got the vaccine and then a, a, a day or two later, or three days later, the baby dies and the parent's looking for a reason to blame it on something. And they say, oh, my baby got the vaccine. And so, so the argument is that this, is, this could potentially be reporting bias. They're, they're just reporting it more, more often because it happened, uh, you know, it happened shortly after. Not, but, but the deaths aren't, aren't actually related, okay? But there's a way that I can dispel of the, um, the strength of this weakness, okay? If I can put it in those terms. And I do that in the paper because I have another uh, table in, in here. Mm -hmm. And um, this is, and, and, and if you look back at original data, if you look at tables two and three, yeah. uh, and, and, or if you go back, or if you go back to figure, basically what it's looking at is what's called an incubation period. What happens with the incubation period more deaths are not reported on day one. More deaths are actually reported on day two. There's an, a possible explanation for this is that there is an incubation period uh, for the death to take place. The whole process that begins, and there's going to be an inflammatory process that's going to cause uh, difficulty with auto, eventually cause difficulty with auto resuscitation. There, that process takes time to build up and peak. And that peak period, there's evidence in the scientific literature that that process takes, can take anywhere from 24 to 48 hours. And that's like, imagine if you ingested poison, but the poison isn't gonna kill you right away, but it's gonna take, it's gonna take 24 to 48 hours to do what it, what it does to, to cause you to expire. And, and that is evidence against reporting bias when you've got this incubation period. That's evidence of a biological plausibility for Dr. Douglas's theory of what is actually taking place and that it takes time for that process to occur. Getting back to the point that you brought up is that they're asking for consensus now, not only for a parent to win one of these cases, not only does their expert witness have to show biological plausibility, not only do they have to show some kind of physiological linkage between the vaccine and some physiological process that leads to the death, but there has to be cons medical consensus amongst doctors. First of all, Dr. Miller, this neuropathologist that we're discussing, he's obviously a genius. He's made this connection, okay? And in the medical literature, you can go back throughout history where where you can look at all these ridiculous things that they've done in the medical practices until some genius came along and said, hey, wait, we're doing something wrong, okay? Hey, let's wash our hands. Let's, uh, you know, before we goes perform surgery. Yeah. Wash your hands, stop okay. infection. Right? And everybody says, this is ridiculous. What do you mean, wash your hands? Why should we have to do that? So you've got this genius that comes along and he's able to show this physiological process. He's able to show this linkage that's that's necessary so that there's there, that's clear, there's a clear biological plausibility. Now they're raising the bar and they're saying, oh no, 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 we want all the doctors to have a consensus on this. That, that's absurd. That, that's, that is just another ploy. That is another tactic. That's another censoring mechanism 
that, that has been instituted by the medical pharmaceutical industry to, to shut down any, any linkage. For them to say, to actually say, if we give out compensation, this is gonna act as a disincentive to vaccination. Yeah, that's political. That's not medical. That's, that's, that's a political argument. That's not a medical argument. For them to say that because this vaccine might be shown to, to cause death and, and it might reduce vaccinations. Well, yeah, it should reduce vaccinations. Some people should, it should instill in people a desire to research vaccines a little bit deeper before they, they go and just blindly follow what they're being told by the medical industry, by the pharmaceutical industry, and by these people that are supposed to be experts that we're supposed to shut up and listen to. There's my say. Unbelievable. Okay, we've come to the end of our program, but uh, this is, I'm going to have you back on as a guest because I have a feeling you got another paper in you very soon, or we're going to have to have some follow-up on this SIDS paper because I think this is going to gain some traction. I know that uh, there was a real kind of retrospective look at was it last fall? Mark Laxell put out a little bit of a, a study, not really published much, that looked at uh, the drop in what we call SIDS cases and coincidentally happened during the uh, pandemic because mothers were not getting their children, newborns vaccinated, and all of a sudden a huge drop. I think that pissed off the medical community quite a bit. So anyway. Yeah, I think there's, I think there's potential for a lot of data now, you know, looking back at 2020 and to see because a lot of people did not vaccinate and to see what happened with with all of these these rates of, of various uh adverse adverse uh, events adverse oh yeah i know adverse health know. conditions uh if, yep. there, if there's a drop in adverse health conditions related to to, to non-vaccination during 2020 that that could be significant so we'll, we're gonna look at that it'll take a couple of years before we can tease out the numbers but yeah we'll we'll see it Listeners, you've been listening to the Right on Point podcast. It's a candid discussion of your civil liberties, issues, and your legal rights with your government. And we discuss what no one else will by digging deep into the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, otherwise known as the Vaccine Court, the PREP Act, the Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program, and legalities of the COVID pandemic. This podcast is made possible by the generous contributions of you, the listeners, Please consider a donation to ensure future discussion interviews. I really want to thank our guest today, Mr. Neil Miller, for coming on and explaining his papers. It's been tremendous. It's been a fun discussion. And I want to thank the many listeners of this program. To leave you, which I do every week with the following, and that is keep learning, keep challenging yourself, always, always question authority. Everybody have a good day, and we'll see you next week. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed the podcast and thank you for listening.